Great. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 7 today. So Revelation 2, 1 to 7, and then we'll also um, be picking up some other scriptures along the way. So um, I know Mark prayed for us, but I'd like to pray again before we start. Lord, thank you for your word. You say it's living and active and sharp like a two-edged sword. And I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would anoint the reading, the hearing, and the responding to the message that you have for your church here today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Um, If you were living in 1974, and I recognize that not all of us were, but if you were, you might remember a number one hit song. It was number one in the USA, then in the UK, then it went over to Australia and New Zealand. Tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree. Yeah, a few of us we're there, I remember. All right, by Tony Orlando and Don, it was about a couple who had been separated for three years due to incarceration. And the husband had written to the wife, I'm coming home, I've done my time, now I've got to know what is and isn't mine. If you received my letter telling you I'd soon be free, then you'll know just what to do if you still want me. If you still want me. We'll tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree. It's been three long years. Do you still want me? If I don't see a ribbon round the old oak tree, I'll stay on the bus, forget about us, put the blame on me. If I don't see a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree. 
Then he goes on and he tells the bus driver, you look, I can't stand, I can't bear to see what I'm going to see. Then he hears the whole bus cheering and he sees a hundred yellow ribbons around that tree. Well, this is a story about looking for evidence of enduring love. And I guess it has its origins back in um, military service where people were sent out on military and their spouses or their fiancés would wear a yellow ribbon in their hair or on their clothing, showing that they were longing for their loved one to return. Why am I telling you this? Why am I singing a song? All right, this is how I think it ties in. Jesus is not in jail, and he's not on deployment, but he's been apart, and he's looking for evidence Not a yellow ribbon, but he's looking for evidence of the church's love. Will there be enduring love when he comes back? All right, this um, passage of scripture from Revelation is a vision that um, the Lord gave to John on the Isle of Patmos when he was there in exile. And he um, gives, actually, he says, um, I want to I show you seven things about seven churches, and this one in Ephesus is the first one that's mentioned. And the church in Ephesus was commended for doing many good things. Their deeds were consistent with Christian faith. They were doing hard work. They persevered. They were holding firm for the sake of Jesus' name. They were exercising discernment. They didn't tolerate wicked people. They tested And they found to be false um, certain people that were saying, I'm an apostle, I'm a leader. They persevered. It was mentioned again. How many of you know those were hard conversations? When you're doing discernment and you're trying to call out false teaching and so forth, they were enduring hard conversations, and yet they were persevering. They endured hardships for the sake of Christ. They hadn't grown weary. How many of us would grow weary just from all this list of things they were doing? And he says even this, that you hate what I hate. These practices of the Nicolaitans. Well, what, what are these? who are these people? What are they doing? They think it's probably from one of the first disciples, descendants, or not disciples, um, the deacons. Um, some of the first deacons, one of them, Nicholas, was um, he had converted from paganism to Judaism, and then to Christianity. And so they think that this maybe is one of his disciples, one of his offspring and and, um, the clan, and they were promoting compromise within the church. So they were saying, we'll worship Jesus, plus we'll worship the idols. Remember Ephesus, Artemis, the idol worship in that city? And so there was compromise. When you bring compromise When you bring a progressive agenda, liberal agenda from the world, and let it come into the church, it affects and causes a weak, um, really an impotent church when you compromise. And he says, I want to give you credit. You hate what I hate. Don't bring compromise into my church. And so all this list of good things that the church Ephesus is doing, all these affirmations, And he says, yet I hold this against you. You can be doing many good and right things and still miss the main thing. He says, you've fallen. He could say, you've backslidden. Well, what did they do? It's really kind of interesting because the church at Ephesus looked so successful. 
They were so active. They were doing so many things. And yet this vision that John um, received, and it maybe wasn't noticeable to anybody at that point yet, but these busy, hardworking people in the church of Ephesus were missing the main thing. The trouble was that the church had forsaken her first love. Verse 4 in the NIV says, You have forsaken the love you had at first. And so the question is, love for whom? And it's said that every translation is an interpretation, and so let me just read you a few translations. The New Living Translation says, But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. The ESV, which is quite a literal translation, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Well, let's go to the Net Bible. But I have this against you. You have departed from your first love. And that Greek word that is um, used and translated departed from actually can be used of divorce. And so the imagery here is very strong. In the Greek, you have lost your first love. Now consider Jesus' words about the greatest commandment. In Mark 12, Jesus was asked of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus answered, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So it's one commandment, but it's combined, and the primary emphasis is our love for God. We're to love the Lord our God with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. This is the primary love, and then out of this will flow love for others. And so if we lose our first love, it will indeed impact the love that we have for other people as well. This is why um, if a church says to itself, you know, we just are really um, not seeing really deep, meaningful, loving relationships within our community, well, you could just try to come up with a technical solution like let's have more get-togethers or let's go play softball together and maybe that'll build some community but really have you ever thought maybe that's just a symptom and maybe the real problem is that we as individuals are not receiving God's love and responding to God's love because if there's a problem with that primary relationship then it'll have trickle-down effects the same in marriage If there's a lack of love in marriage, the first question might be, how's your relationship, each one of you, with the Lord? Are you receiving his love, and how are you responding and returning that love to him? Because that primary relationship will affect all of your relationships. So the problem is this. In Jesus' absence and over a period of time, the church's love for Jesus was growing cold. They didn't love him with the same fervor as when they were new Christians. They lost the simplicity and the passion of their early love for Jesus. So 
I asked the question, why is this a problem? And I think I've already alluded to it. But let me tell you, this word love is agape. And when um, I just want to read this definition that I quoted. It is agape love that occurs when a person sees, recognizes, understands, and appreciates the value of a person. And because of that respect, that value, that under, the appreciation of that person, it causes them to hold that person in great esteem, awe, admiration, wonder, and sincere appreciation. So it's this great respect that compels the person to a sacrificial love of agape. When we're talking about the church needs more of the fear of the Lord, what are we really saying? We want to hold, we recognize that there's a lack of awe and reverence and respect. And if that's the case, then the agape love is going to weaken, right? And so there's a connection between the fear of the Lord, this admiration of him, and then the sacrificial love that comes because we see the value in him. Pastor Dave said recently in one of his sermons, duty cannot sustain us through difficulty and persecution. Only love for Jesus is strong enough to sustain the church and the church's love for one another through whatever trials may come. And in this passage from Revelation, it says, if you don't change your ways, I'm going to come and remove the lampstand from its place. Another way to say that is you're going to lose your Christian witness to the world. We're supposed to be bright lights that are shining with the love of God. And he said, I'm going to come remove that because actually what you're doing is diminishing that um, witness to the world. Well, I've told you what the trouble is. What's the good news? What's the grace in this? And it's a call to repent. He says in verse 5, repent and do the things you did at first. Well, repent means to agree with God and to change your ways. If you don't change your behavior, you're just simply acknowledging your guilt. All right? So it goes beyond acknowledging guilt and then saying, I agree with you, Lord. I'm not, I've lost my first love and I'm going to change my behavior. Now, what is the change of behavior that he calls for. If you've lost and departed from your love, how do you get it back? Well, the answer is, according to this passage, do the things you did at first. Reorient your life toward Jesus Christ. Be completely devoted to doing whatever it is necessary to retain your spiritual fervor. And in your questions that you ask on her um, Yep, you're taking notes on there. But I noticed this. Let's see here. The question, which any of us that have made profession of faith before in the church, do you promise to do all you can with the help of the Holy Spirit to strengthen your love and commitment to Christ? We all said, yes, we do, the Lord helping us. And so this is something that not only um, he calls us to do, it's possible to do, the Lord helping us. Um, have you ever heard somebody 
questioning whether they want to just give up on a friendship or a marriage. And the question is, is this worth fighting for? Is this worth fighting for? Is this worth sacrificing for? Is this worth giving up other things so that I can devote myself? And he's saying, go back and do the things you did at first. Verse 7 says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So no transformation happens to us if we don't hear and respond to the Holy Spirit's prompting. And the good news is that we can be victorious if we hear and take to heart the correction that he's giving. And as Mark said earlier, why do parents correct? They correct because they love and they're trying to train up a child in the way that they should go. And so the Lord loves us. He loved the church in Ephesus. He loved every church that would read the letter after it was written. And he's saying, I want to show you the way to go, church. So how do we do the things that we did at first? How does the church in Ephesus do the things that they did at first? What does first love look like? And this made my mind, and I believe by the Holy Spirit's prompting, start to think about the book of Song of Songs. All right, reminders of first love. The Song of Songs, when they use that little word of, like Lord of Lords, it's saying the best in the classification. So the Lord is the best in the classification of Lords. He is king of kings. He is the best in the class of all kings. He is the premier king. When holy of holies, it's the best holiness, the most pure holiness, the holy of holies. This is the song of all songs. It's the premier song of love. And it's in the Bible for a reason. Now, what reason is this book of Song of Songs? Maybe you read it as a little kid and you blushed and you thought, oh, my goodness, this is in the Bible? Um, Well, yes, it could be a biblical counseling um, book to refer to about talking about the goodness of the gift of sex between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. Very good resource for that. It's also a book of poetry and wisdom that expresses the deep love of a man and a woman, love as it was meant to be, without any of the effects of the fall. It's showing uh, without the effects of sin how love was designed to be intimate and without shame and characterized by mutual admiration and care for one another. When we get a glimpse at what love is supposed to look like In the natural, we start to get a little bit of an understanding of what God intended in the supernatural between his bride and himself as groom. The Jews saw this book of Song of Songs as an allegory, a story or a poem that had a hidden meaning or you had to search for the meaning, but they saw it as a a book about God's relationship with his people. Christians have viewed this as a book about Christ and his church. The early church fathers like Origen, Gregory, Augustine, Jerome, they saw this with deep symbolism 
for the relationship between Christ and his church and the maturing of that love as you go through the book. Now, the Passion Translation, you know there's different translations. I read some of them this morning about verse 4 and how they interpret. The Passion Translation uses what it calls dynamic equivalent. This is a little bit of a teaching moment. Stay with me. Love the Lord with your brain right now. Okay? Um, so it, what, it, what they tried to do is to take the equivalent of what was said, and instead of translating it word for word, because there's so much symbolism that meant something to the original hearers that is lost on us in this day and age, and so they tried to translate it in what is the equivalent meaning in a way that we can understand this for today. And so the, the meaning and not just the words have been translated. Well, I think it's under, it makes it more understandable for us. So you may not have the Passion Translation at home, but you can certainly find it online. I did and um, printed it. It's you know not that many pages. But I found it really helpful, and I want to tell you what I did with this. Because if he wants us to understand first love and what it looks like, and if this is the book of premier love, then I wanted to look through and see what did it say about the Shulamite or the woman, or we might say the bride of Christ, and how did she respond to the groom, the shepherd king, the one that some... Um, translations just says a simple she and a he. Um, but what did it say about this woman? And what did it say about this man? And what did it show in the love? I, I've read this um, book. It's just eight chapters. I've read it in multiple translations this week. And I've spent time going through saying, Lord, show me. What does first love look like? What do I see in here? Because I want to share it with you. But I want to encourage each of you. Go through the book of Song of Songs and do the same thing I did this week. Study it. Ask the Lord, after you read it, does my love look like her love? Does our church's love look like her love? And do I recognize how much Jesus loves his church by looking at what this shepherd king, this groom that was coming for the bride what did his love look like? And do I realize how much he loves me like this? Beautiful, beautiful exercise, and I think the Lord will bear such fruit from it by you doing this. I want to make a few observations. And um, I could go through all eight chapters and tell you everything I saw, but I don't want to blow it for you, for your um, own exploration. But I want to point out a few things because I see a progression in the bride as she receives and soaks in the love of the groom. The Shulamite drinks in affection. It says in the translation, the Passion Translation, let him smother me with kisses, his spirit kiss divine. So kind are your caresses. I drink them in like the sweetest wine. She desires to be in his presence she says, your presence releases a fragrance so pleasing over and over poured out. For your lovely name is flowing oil. No wonder the brides-to-be adore you. She desires to be connected at the heart level. 
and she desires intimacy with her beloved. She's eager to be together. Friends, does this, as I read this, does this sound like your words to the Lord today? Draw me into your heart. We will run away together into the king's cloud-filled chamber. There's a, ongoing, there's a group that's on looking on this. It's called the Chorus of Friends. It reminds me of a wedding reception. You know, where everybody is so excited about the love of the bride and the groom, and they're dinging the glasses like, kiss, kiss, you all right? Um, well, they're watching on. Everybody's watching on to this love relationship, and they say, we will remember your love, rejoicing and delighting in you, celebrating your every kiss as better than wine. Sometimes when you get up here and testify, church, about your love for God and his love for you, I just feel like clinging the glass. Like, I'm like, I see it, I see it, you all love each other. When we hear Joy professing what he's done for her and the transformation, don't you hear in her love, she's received his love, she's loving him back? Well, this is what the chorus of friends is seeing. And this, my friends, is why he says, I'm going to come remove your lampstand if that first love isn't there because people are watching. Do we see love? Do we see true love between us, his church, his bride, and Jesus, the groom that's coming back for us? I want to point out a few other things. This is just in the first chapter. Um, Verse 5, she says, I know I'm so unworthy, so in need. I feel as dark and dry as the desert tents of the wandering nomads. In that, there was no sense of entitlement. She readily admits her needs and her flaws, and I think repentance comes readily. When you're in first love, I blew it. I'm sorry. I love you. I love you too, right? Like there's this this, um, vulnerability, this openness with each other. And the shepherd king, he says this. He says, yet you're so lovely. He repeats it again. You're so lovely. You're like the fine linen tapestry hanging in the holy place. The king sees her as she truly is, as an image bearer of God. He sees her, and I think we would say as Christians, through the blood of Jesus, already seeing who she's becoming and who she is in him. The Shulamite woman says, oh, show me where you've got your flocks. I want to be where you're working. When we are Christians, when we love God, when we're waiting for him, we're like, Where are you at work? I want to join you there, right? The shepherd king, he gives invitations to bring the burdens and cares to him. He says, come to me with your burdens and cares. Come to the place near the sanctuary of my shepherds. He views his beloved as strong and beautiful. Listen to this, verse 9. My dearest one, let me tell you how I see you. You are so thrilling to me. To gaze upon you is like looking at one of Pharaoh's finest horses, a strong, regal steed, pulling his chariot. Your tender cheeks are beautiful. Your earrings and gem-laden necklaces set them ablaze. We will enhance your beauty with golden ornaments studded with silver. And we can look at this symbolism and we can say, the Lord sees us and he longs to give gifts to his bride to make her even more radiant, to make her even more a witness 
to his glory, to his riches, to his kingdom. The Shulamite woman, she is longing for this deep embrace. She says in verse 14, he's like a bouquet of henna blossoms, henna plucked near the vines at the fountain of the lamb. I will hold him and never let him part. There's this desire to be together. This is what first love looks like. Maybe you've seen a relationship, a dating relationship that starts to move towards a deeper love. And don't they want to spend time together? Yeah? If you're a parent, you're going, no. (laughs) You've got to get some sleep sometime. Uh, No, you've got to do your homework or, you know, whatever. Um, But... But this idea of longing to spend time together. And the the shepherd king, he notices the love that he sees in the eyes of the bride. And it, oh, I just, I could go on and on. More things I see in the bride as you go into another chapter, that she recognizes how she's flourishing in his love. And she's able to rest and abide in his loving presence and I want to say, how are we doing in that? How are we doing in resting and abiding in his presence? She's aware that her shepherd's king's love is unrelenting. And she asked him to revive, to refresh, to help her, to hold her. And are we, church, we've been through a season. Are we asking him to revive, to help? to hold, to strengthen us? Or are we simply just doing these busy things for the Lord because this is our practice? You know, the church can get, um, somebody has used the illustration of a wheel within a wheel, like you kind of get going and rolling and things are rolling along. But are we doing it connected to and with our hearts fully engaged in loving God, it's the first commandment, and it might sound a little gushy for some of you that are head people, like, oh, you know, why are you talking about these feelings, this mushy, gushy love stuff? But I'm telling you, the first commandment was love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? Your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. You can have good doctrine, and good doctrine is important. You can have good deeds, but if you're not connected at a heart level, a deep heart level, loving God, respecting him, esteeming him, it's not going to sustain the pressures of this world and persecution. He goes on, the groom tells her, watch out for the little foxes. What are those little foxes? They're little foxes. They're going to try to uproot everything that he's planted in her. And he says, I'll help you catch them. Those might be sins. Those might be temptations. Those might be unfulfilled expectations. Different things that could be little foxes in the relationship. And he wants to help because he loves. And she trusts him enough to let him help because she loves and trusts him. Friends, the Lord's calling us into this passionate renewed, revived relationship, I believe. It ties in with our prayers for revival. Revival almost always starts with repentance and a reviving of the church 
And then when that revived love is there, it's a witness to the world and other people say, I want to know what you know. I want to know who you know. I brought my Bible that I had, um, well, it's almost 25 years ago now that I bought this Bible to do a women's Bible study. And um, I cannot bring myself to get rid of this Bible because this is my my love letter that I started to realize how much he loved me. And I'd spend an hour or more before work in the morning reading the Bible and in prayer. And then I would I would go to work and I'd take it with me in my bag as a nurse. And then I'd pull it out at lunch. We had to eat fast. But I'm like, I just need to read a few pages. <laughs> you know, like I, I just got to see what he's got to say to me. And then when I was discipling somebody and I was telling this new Christian about what this Bible means to us, I said, this is his love letter. And, you know, like everything he says, like the book of Ephesians, like there's not a little square inch of any space to write anything in the notes because I just took notes all over it. My passion for God and his word doesn't always stay at the uber level. Um, But you know what? If it starts to wane, I know what to do. Go back to what I used to do. Go back. Go back. Return to what I used to do. We heard a testimony not too long ago from um, Chess, who got up here and said that he was convicted as he was um, talking about the topic of prayer or studying about it, that suddenly he realized that he spent 13 minutes a day in prayer. He computed it. He added it up. How much do I spend praying before meals and in the morning and at bedtime? And he said, 13 minutes. And he said, I feel convicted that I need to up my ante. I need to work on my relationship in prayer. Now, friends, we could listen to this message and say, are you just telling us a bunch of to-do stuff? Well, I'm just telling you what the Bible said. He says, return. He says, repent and return to the things you did at first. Otherwise, you are backslidden. And your church and your witness to the world is going to be extinguished. This is serious. This is serious. And this is hopeful. Because he and his love never fails. And he's relentless towards us, and he calls us, and he woos us. And I'm wondering how many of you have been feeling, and I'm just going to ask really for a show of hands, have you been feeling like the Lord's calling you into a deeper season, a time of revival, a time of spending more time with him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm seeing hands go up all over the place. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's say yes to the Lord. Let's say yes. Revive me. Help me. Strengthen me. Because there is a world that is confused as all get out, that's being deceived on so many levels. And what is going to strengthen our witness is going to be a revived relationship with our groom. He's coming back. He's not looking for a yellow ribbon. He's looking for behaviors that are consistent with passionate first love in his bride.
and I'm going to ask us right now to do something that may stretch you. If you're a guest, you don't have to pray out loud, but I'm going to just invite you to turn to a couple of people that are around you. You can stand up and just turn in little huddles and um, pray. You, you might pray about what the Lord's saying to you through this message. You might pray for the church's first love to be revived and restored. You might want to pray something personally, or you might just want to pray for not just this church, but let's pray for the church. Yeah? And so I'm going to invite you to just turn and pray for a few minutes, and then I'll close this in a minute, and we'll, we'll sing a song of response. <laughs>